But we can only do this if we remind ourselves if we are, uh, that we are small and not big, if we remain humble and not prideful. If we do this, then we might be able to throw water on the fire rather than gasoline. So we must keep ourselves small. And we need to understand we are small. We are small, finite creatures who are at the mercy of a mighty, sovereign, infinite, and eternal God who sees all and knows all. And when we begin to think otherwise, we become prideful. And with pride comes trouble. In this instance here with Israel and Judah, the trouble that came with pride carries the name Sheba. Now, Sheba is of the tribe of Benjamin, which is interesting because Benjamin is a tribe that belongs to Judah, right? Sheba doesn't belong to the northern tribes, but yet here he is speaking to northern tribes of Israel and stirring them up against Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, against David. More than likely, Sheba was loyal to Absalom and saw this impassioned moment of quarreling between the tribes as an opportunity. So he rallies the northern tribes to himself, and they leave the men of Judah, and they leave King David. The words Sheba uses to rally the people to him are found in verse 1, and these are very similar words that are used in 1 Kings 12 when the kingdom splits. But yet these words, they still echo today in the church, though, don't they? Words that are rooted in pride, anger, and selfishness. We hear them when people get mad at the church, or they don't like how things are done within the church. For one example, Joe and Sarah always did the meal after church. Then one week, the church has another person do it. Rather than being happy that the church is being built up and God is glorified, Joe and Sarah become angry and declare they have no portion in this church. And they leave. And you might be thinking, well, that's a small thing, isn't it? Yes, but people have left the church over smaller things than that. But why, though? Was it over something doctrinal? No. Was it over something untrue? No, simply over pride and over selfishness. Countless people refuse to come to church, not in the name of holiness, but because of pride and the form of self-righteousness. It's not that they don't have their reasons. They all have their reasons, but it doesn't mean the reasons are validated. It's not that the church does not mess up and hurt people. The church certainly does. The church is made up of fallen people, people like Judah, and just like Judah, who, uh, who had fiercer words, misstepped in this situation, the church often missteps. And the church will often use words that are too fierce. But one sin does not justify the sin of another, especially in the case of those who are called to be filled with the Spirit, which is everyone who claims to be a faithful follower of Christ. Look at Ephesians 5.18. Paul writes, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now consider the words, be filled with the Spirit. That's a second person plural imperative. Imperative means command. A second person plural means it's not just you, the individual, but you all, meaning literally you all be filled or y'all be filled. Now, before we go any further on this, I do want to delineate what being filled by the Spirit is and isn't. This was a question brought up last night um, at the Saturday night service, uh, so I've added this in here to help clarify this. Uh, and I want to clarify this before we see how we know if we are being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is not about salvation. All right? At salvation, yes, the Spirit does indwell you and inhabits your soul. And I'm trying to answer a, a complex topic very concisely, briefly. But when we, when Paul, I should say, speaks of being filled with the Spirit, he is speaking about continually submitting one's, one whole, one's whole self 
to the leading and direction of the spirits, not submitting to their flesh. Because as long as we're on this earth, before Jesus Christ returns, we have that battle between flesh and spirit. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit in us, but we also have the opportunity to either say no to the spirit and yes to the flesh, or no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. When we say no to the flesh, yes to the spirit, and follow him completely in all, in all of our faculties and abilities, that is us being filled with the spirits. But if we go the way of the flesh, we're not filled with the Spirit. We're still saved, but we're not being filled with the spirits. And a person who is saved, though, let's be clear on this, a person who is saved will desire to be filled with the spirits, and all the more as they become sanctified, edified, as they grow in righteousness, and they are made more complete as they mature in their faith. They will not desire it less. They will desire more and more days. I want the spirit. I want only the spirit. I want nothing to do with my flesh. And Paul is, here, Paul is saying here, this is what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. Be filled with the spirit. Submit yourself to the holiness of God. Now, I, I hope that helps. If not, let's talk because, I mean, I could probably spend a whole sermon on what it means to be filled uh, with the spirit. There are books written on the topic itself uh, but I hope that um, clarifies some things. If not, let's talk. Now, let us see what Paul says being filled by the Spirit looks like. To help us with this, let us consider the context of Ephesians. It's a letter written to the church, to a community of people about how to live as a community with Christ as the head. Now consider the immediate context of what follows the command to be filled with the Spirit. Verses 19 through 21. If we start with the end of 18, Paul say, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And submission to one another does not happen effectively when pride is in the way. If you are prideful, as Israel and Judah was prideful, it is hard, in fact, impossible, to effectively submit to one another. If Judah and Israel were humble people, they could have submitted to one another out of reverence for the Lord's anointed, for King David, but they weren't. They were prideful. And in order for us today to be filled with the Spirit, we must remove our pride first. And if we do remove our pride and allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, then we can effectively do what Paul tells us to do in verses 19 through 21. For this is what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And this only happens within the context of the local church, of the local body. You do not do this at home, and you cannot do this in isolation, nor can you do this virtually online. To be filled with the Spirit's as Scripture teaches it, as what it looks like, you have to be in fellowship, in physical uh, community with the body of believers in order so that we can sing psalms to one another, we can give thanks to one another, and we can submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, pride keeps us from the Lord's will. It was pride that led to the fall of Genesis 3, and it is pride that leads, that leads to Sheba's fall. For as we have read, where did this path of Sheba take him? Well, it led Sheba to having, um, having himself thrown over the wall of the city without his body. That is, his body remained in the city while his head, which was heavy from the crown of pride, fell from the city wall to the feet of Joab. Paul warns us of the consequence of pride within the church in Galatians 5, 14, 15. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The half-brother of Jesus, James, likewise warns us about our pride and jealousy in James 3, 14, 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly, demonic, and unspiritual. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Therefore, let us remain small, let us remain humble in our place, And in order for us to do this, we must be wise. But before we speak about being wise, let us consider one more path we ought to stay off of, and that is the path of arrogance. Sheba represented the path of pride. You can probably guess who represents the path of arrogance, for we have seen this man on this path before, and of course this man is Joab, the nephew of King David, the former general of David's army. In response to Sheba's rebellion, David commands Amasa, his new general, the cousin of Joab, to gather a military force and quell the rebellion. David has given Amasa three days to do so, and Amasa has delayed for some reason or another. It doesn't say why. Perhaps the men of Judah were slow to gather, or perhaps Amasa wasn't as loyal as David thought he was, and Amasa was being a little lazy with his duties. In his delay, David appoints Joab's younger brother, so he overlooks Joab again and appoints Abishai as the general to quell the rebellion. David understood, unlike what Absalom understood, is that sooner the better we fight um, is in David's advantage, lest Sheba organize a massive military force like David was able to do when Absalom took his time to chase down David. So as Abishai pursued Sheba, Amasa finally joins the army at Gibeon, and it is here that Joab finds his opportunity to regain his position um, and to get the vengeance he desires. Joab, like the skilled killer that he is and the experienced murderer, calmly and collectively pretends to greet Amasa by affectionately grabbing his beard, which apparently was not an odd thing to do back then. Um, And he seems to give him a kiss, but instead kisses him with the cold still of his sword into his abdomen. Amasa comes to his end in a similar way that Abner himself came to his, his end at the hand of Joab in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. However, Amasa's wound was apparently rather grotesque, as his body had to be hidden away from the men as they kept stopping and staring at the scene. And consider this, these are men who have seen battle, these are men who have seen mortal wounds before. But then again, perhaps it wasn't the wound, but rather it was to whom the wound suffered that was shocking. For once again, Joab in his arrogance has taken matters into his own hands unbeknownst to the king. Joab cares not for the wishes of the king. This is a pattern that's typical of Joab. With the murder of Abner, the slaying of Absalom, and now Amasa. Arrogance and pride are very close relatives. Sheba and Joab are very similar. In fact, pride leads to arrogance. Perhaps arrogance is understood as pride's offspring. The heart of Joab was like the heart of David's companion, who David wrote about in Psalm 55, 21, where David writes, His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And though Joab committed his actions from the sight of the king, 
His actions would be made known, as Proverbs 26, 24 through 26 warns us about the arrogance. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Joab's heart was filled with hate towards Amasa, just as it was towards Abner. He's a man who lacked grace and mercy and any desire to reconcile any enemy of his. And, what, and in both instances, Joab covered his violent intentions with gracious words. With Abner, he greeted him with peace, and likewise with Amasa, he does the same. And in his arrogance, Joab thought he could get away with it. He thought he could do this and twist the arm of David, and for a time, he does. For what could David do to Joab upon returning from quelling this rebellion from Sheba, having secured victory for the king and unifying the nation with minimal bloodshed? What could David do? But Joab does answer for his arrogance. We read of it in 1 Kings 2, when King David on his deathbed to his son Solomon gives him instructions for the kingdom once he is gone. Joab's continued arrogance, like Sheba's pride, ultimately leads to his death. Joab's death will come at the hand of a consistently loyal man to David's family. That is Benaiah, who not only serves as Solomon's general after serving David faithfully for many years, but apparently becomes his executioner because not only does he slay Joab, but he slays Shammai as well. Joab's arrogance, Joab's problem was rooted in his pride, in his sin. He thought he was bigger than he was. And Yahweh will punish the prideful and arrogant. He will punish those who think they are bigger than they actually are. Isaiah 13, 11, I, that's Yahweh, that's God, will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogance and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. If Joab was wise and feared Yahweh, he would have hated his own arrogance, for he would have recognized how pride and arrogance is evil and how pride and arrogance leads to death. This is a statement Proverbs 8.13 makes clear. The fear of the Lord, that's Yahweh, is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Yet Joab did not fear Yahweh, and as most of you know, as Proverbs 1.7 states, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or is the beginning of wisdom. Now, seeing how the paths of pride and arrogance lead to death, let us look to the path that is less traveled and as such more narrow, yet is the path that leads to life, which is the path of wisdom. The path of wisdom is seen at the end of Sheba's rebellion at the city of Abel of Beth Makkah. For it is there that Joab and his men, having chased Sheba through all Israel, found Sheba holding up there. Joab was setting siege to the city when the voice of wisdom shouted out in verse 16 for Joab to come and hear her words. So here we have a woman who, if her actions weren't enough for you, the author describes her as wise. A woman who has taken initiative in a male-dominant society to engage with Joab for the sake of the city. And as such, she is in a living example of Ecclesiastes 7.19, where the teacher writes, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, or in this case, wise woman, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Excuse me. And taking the initiative, this nameless woman 
places herself in good company with other women of the Old Testament who also took initiative to bring a crisis to an end. Consider Jael of Judges 4.17.21, who took the initiative with Sisera in order to kill him by driving a tent peg through his skull. Or the unnamed woman of Judges 9.52.54 who killed Abimelech from the city wall by dropping a rock on his head. And of course, Abigail and her actions with David, sparing her worthless husband, Nabal, and his servants uh, from David's wrath in 1 Samuel 25. Even in the time and culture of 10th century BC, a woman's voice was heard. And most importantly, women in the Old Testament, like Abigail and this wise woman in our text, are noted and commended for their wise words and their actions in crucial times. Therefore, let us not be arrogant and neglect the voice of women today. Not that gender automatically grants a person an audience, but let's not allow gender to automatically discredit a person. As a complementarian church, which we are here at Hope, if we are to be faithful to the scriptures and faithful to one another, we must not ignore the value of women nor the voice of women. They may not hold the positions of authority within the church, but they can certainly speak wisdom and influence on the matters of the church. This is in part why we have women who sit on our ministry teams. Though they may not chair them, they can certainly partake of them. And if you are a woman wanting to be more involved or want to know how to do so, please ask myself or any of the elders. And I mention this because there are those out there, there are many who believe that in a complementarian church, women have no voice. They have no say. They think complementarianism is a, is a method, is, is a mechanical way to silence women in the church. But in a church that practices healthy and faithful complementarianism um, in accordance to scriptures, women not only have a voice, but they are nourished and are protected, allowing them and their families to thrive. Now, here in 2 Samuel, the unnamed woman of wisdom prevented death for many and led many to life. This is what wisdom does. Wisdom saves. Wisdom delivers. It prevents death. Consider the voice the call of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 1, who cries out to the fools, to the arrogant, to the simple ones, and attempt to save them. And yet, if they don't respond to Lady Wisdom, they don't respond to her voice. If they ignore her, she will mock them as calamity falls upon them, as they eat the fruits of their ways. Yet, those who heed the counsel of wisdom, those who fear the Lord, those who follow the path of wisdom, they will find security and rest. Proverbs one thirty three. But whoever listens to me, that's Lady Wisdom, will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread or disaster. Just as Joab listened to the wise woman at Beth Marcah and thus granting rest and security to his men and to the inhabitants of the city. In fact, the only person that died that day was the prideful Sheba. The others were delivered. Today, wisdom is sorely lacking, both within the church and outside of the church. But that's not a new thing. Wisdom has always been lacking um, in society as a whole, perhaps to a greater degree than before, but the lack of wisdom has always been an issue. For folly, for foolishness, that is our natural inclination. When we do nothing, we just become more foolish and more unwise. In order for us to become wise, we must do something. We must discipline. We must act against our nature. It, we drift towards foolishness, towards folly. We don't drift towards wisdom. The paths of pride and arrogance, they are wide. They are easy. They are well-traveled. They are enticing, and many people travel on them. 
In fact, oftentimes, by not walking on them, those who do walk on them will mock you for not doing so. They will say, look at all of us. We're walking this way. Why are you walking that way, you fool? They will consider themselves wise, and they will call the wise fools. But we must not think that safety is found in numbers. Just consider the days of Noah. Safety surely was not found when the, in numbers when the flood came. Nor must we think that wisdom is found by the volume of one's voice or how well, a person, how well heard a person is. Ecclesiastes 9.17 The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. I don't think there are more apt words to describe society now or how the political season went last year. Just because somebody has a louder voice or talks over somebody doesn't make them more wise. We must be careful that volume does not drown out the wise. We must keep our ears to the ones that often just whisper wisdom in the corners because that's often where you will find it. If you find yourself walking the path of wisdom, don't be surprised if you only have a handful of companions with you. Don't be surprised on more days than not you bump into those who are walking the path of pride and the path of arrogance. So that should ask ourselves, since it, is, since it can be a lonely walk, what is the end value of walking the path of wisdom rather than the paths of pride and arrogance? Well, clearly it's life, right? Paths of pride and arrogance lead to death. Wisdom leads to life, but not just any life, but abundant life and life everlasting. But what is wisdom? Who determines what is wise? How do we know if we are on this path or not? Surely society has their opinion on what is wise and not, and yet any cursory study of history shows that the opinions of society changes as often as the direction of the wind does in the spring. So how can life everlasting be found in something that's constantly changing, constantly shifting? Well, it can't. But that's not wisdom of life. The wisdom of life is rooted in the knowledge of the eternal, unchanging God. God does not change like the shifting shadows of the world. Therefore, the path of wisdom is found in God's word and not in the constantly changing world. And oftentimes, when you cling to the unchanging word of God, the world shifts every now and then when the wisdom of God seems like foolishness and they will mock you for it. And the trailhead of the path of wisdom is marked for us in Proverbs 9.10, which echoes in part Proverbs 1.7, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom begins when we fear Yahweh, when we fear the consequences of not living as we are called to live in accordance to the eternal truth and accordance to our Creator who has created us. Wisdom can also be summed up in the two great commands of Scripture as love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which we ultimately find this fulfilled in Christ. And not only do we find the perfect fulfillment in Christ, but we find the power and the knowledge to live this way in Christ. We read from James 3, 14, 16 earlier about the danger of pride and about how that's not from above and how it brings forth things that are earthly and demonic. Well, continuing on in verses 17 and 18, James tells us what wisdom from above is. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness, and sown in peace by those who make peace. 
And the wisdom from above is he who has come from above, Jesus Christ. This is what Paul writes about in Colossians 2, 1 through 15. Now, as I read these verses, note how many times Paul speaks about in him. And in him is Christ. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That includes us. That their hearts may be encouraged be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So understanding, knowledge of God's mystery, who is that? Christ. In whom, that's Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Where do we find that? In Christ, in Jesus. You want wisdom? You want to know what wisdom is? It's in Christ. He is wisdom. He is knowledge. He is the mystery of God. Paul continues, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now notice that plausible arguments. Paul isn't worried about foolish arguments. He's worried about plausible arguments. Like worldviews that can captivate you by throwing out hashtags or saying like, love your neighbor. Well, that's plausible. It sounds good. It sounds biblical. But it doesn't mean it's in Christ. It doesn't mean you ought to follow it. It's a plausible argument for a reason, because it's believable. And Paul writes this so that we may not be deluded into these plausible arguments. He continues, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness, firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk, so live in who? Him, in Christ. Rooted and built up in Him, Christ, in wisdom and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you. Again, we see Paul talking about, hey, don't be, don't be taken captive by what the world is throwing out at you. Don't be taken captive by the wisdom of the world. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to who? Christ. Not according to wisdom. For in him, Christ, wisdom, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And you who are dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with who? Christ. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal, legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in who? In Christ, in wisdom of God. You want wisdom for anything in this life? Be in Christ. Look to Christ, eat of his word, deny yourself, follow him, obey his commands, obey his precepts, meditate on him day and night. That means when you go to his word and you read scripture, you memorize Bible verses and you meditate on his word, you don't meditate on his word for the sake of moralism. You don't meditate on the word of God to be a better person. 
You meditate on the word of God to be like Christ, to know Christ, to see Christ, so that, so that his holiness can be your holiness. His righteousness can be your righteousness. It's not about being a better person. It's about being like Christ, because the only righteousness that's going to get you to heaven is his righteousness, is Christ's righteousness. You could, be the, you could be Mother Teresa and it won't get you into heaven. You need to be Christ to enter into the kingdom. So when you meditate on the word of God, look for Christ, find Christ, be like Christ, it's in Christ you find wisdom. You want wisdom for your marriage? You want to be a better husband, a better wife? Know Christ. Be like Christ. Remain in Christ. Abide in Christ. Be humble like Christ. Pray like Christ. Love like Christ. And you need to know his word to know what that looks like. You don't need the five love languages. You don't need a personality test. The only personality test you need to know is, am I like Christ? If you're a sinner, no, you're not. You need to be like Christ. It doesn't matter if you're an introvert or extrovert. You need to be like Christ. You need to say no to yourself. Well, I'm not wired that way. I know you're a sinner. Deny it. Embrace Christ. No one is wired to live righteously. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need the Holy Spirit within us. That's why we need his word. And I'm not saying the five languages are useless, but they're not necessary. God's word is necessary. Christ is necessary. He is all you need. He is fully sufficient. You want to be a better parent, a wise parent? Know Christ. Be like him. Kids, you want to be faithful kids? Be like Christ. You want to be whatever you want to be. You want to be wise? Know Christ. Do away with the self-help books. Know Christ. And if this is not easy. The answer is easy, right? What's the answer? What's the secret to life? What's the mystery to life? Christ is. That's it. But it's hard to do. It's easy to say. It's easy, like, yeah, that's it. It's, it's Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the mystery of God. Christ. That's it. So know him. But it is very hard to put in practice. That's why we do go to those books, like the five love languages, because it's hard and we try to figure out all these other things. We want, we, we want tangible things, but all you have to do is be Christ, be like Christ, to follow him. You simply must know and you must simply obey Christ and be like him by his grace and by his mercy. This is your application of all applications. Right? Some of you are like, wow, I wish we had more applications. There's one application you need, and that's know Christ, be like Christ, follow Christ. He's the only application you need. You don't need any other application beyond that. And you do that by reading his word, praying, submitting to himself, engaging in fellowship by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? That's it. We can talk about the details, but the main thrust of the application is know Christ, be like him, follow him. That's it. We don't need the top 10 ways to be a better parent or the top 10 ways to do this. You just need to be like Christ. Know Christ, glorify Christ by being made like Christ, by the power of the Spirit of Christ in accordance to Christ's good mercy and Christ's grace. Read his word. Pray on the regular for his help. Go to him in your time of need, as Hebrews 4 says that we can, and spend time with his bride. You want to know Christ? Spend time with the one whom he's marrying. Spend time with the one whom he is engaged with, whom he has sealed with his Holy Spirit, the church, the bride. If you don't want to know Christ, well, you just ignore the church. Don't spend time with her, and you won't know him. And don't think that you will be in his good grace if you ignore his bride. You want to know me more? In fact, if you want to know the dark secrets of me, know my wife. Right? You, you get to know her. You'll know more about me that I probably will never reveal to you. She's my softer side, my vulnerable side. So she'll, she'll spill the secrets. 
That's how we get to know one another. If you want to know Christ, you have to know his bride, the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace, your patience with us. Thank you for the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word, Father. Your word whom you have preserved over the ages. The word whom had, that has been passed down from uh, the fathers of old, the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through the prophets and scribes and through the apostles and their disciples. We thank you that we have this great tradition, this great faith, and that we can trust it because your spirit has preserved it for us and for one purpose, that we may know your son in order that we may be reconciled to you and spend eternity with you forever. We thank you that you have marked out the path of wisdom so clearly by your word. But Father, our flesh is weak. Our spirit is willing. Help us. We ask that, Jesus, you would come to our aid, that the spirit that you have sent within us, the paraclete, the comforter, the encourager, the help would do just that, that we would be strengthened. That when temptation comes our way, Father, we would not fall into it, that we would turn away, that we would turn to you in times of need, that we would seek wisdom, that we would hear the voice of Lady Wisdom, that we would hear the voice of your Son, that we would hear the voice of your Word as we meditate on it day and night. And help us, Father, to prepare our souls for the times of temptation, that when things are going good, we spend time in the Word so that we will be ready when the water rises and the wind increases in force or the winds of society shift direction and they are suddenly against us. Father, we thank you that you have provided us this wisdom, that you've given us a way to you. I thank you that we have one another here, Father, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ, that though this path is lonely at times, we can gather here on Sunday, we can gather in life groups, we can encourage one another, that we can be filled by the Spirit as we sing psalms to one another and hymns, and we can, with thanksgiving, lift up our prayers to you, Father, and we can submit in reverence to one another, and we can love one another, Father. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your bride. Father, help us to glorify you in all that we do. And in that, Father, I ask that you'd bless the elements that are before us as we are about to come to communion. We ask that you'd bless the cracker and the juice, that they would be a gift to our souls, that we would be reminded of your grace and mercy, Father. And, and some of us have done great sins this past week. You know them and help us to confess them. Help us to repent of our sins. And, a, and after we repent and confess, Father, bring us to your table with joy, with rejoicing recognizing that the work that your son did, the blood that shed on the cross for our forgiveness, for our sins, it is finished. It is enough. We don't need to add to it. We just need to know him. It is enough. So allow us to come to this table with joy and rejoicing after we confess our ungodly sins, Father, so that we may be encouraged and equipped for the week that's ahead so we may glorify you and we may walk faithfully along the path of wisdom that leads to life everlasting, to an abundant life, Father. Help us to do this so that we can continue to be ready for the return of your son. Help us to be the light to those who are lost, Father. Help us to snatch others off the pride 
off the path of pride and arrogance, Father, and bring them to the path of wisdom. We don't have the power to do so. You alone have that power, but you use that power through us, Father. We thank you for the privilege that we get to have to be um, co-heirs along Christ and to be used by him to build his church. And we ask that we would be used mightily here in West Salem, that we would be used mightily here in the Cooley region, not just within these walls, Father, but in our workplaces, in our schools, where we go shopping, where we play sports, where we work out, where we go for walks, wherever you lead us, Father. Allow us to glorify your name and proclaim the good news. Father, we ask all these things for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, Mark is going to come up and prepare a communion.